your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Those are verses 6 to 9 of Psalm 45, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, March the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at um, Deuteronomy today in chapter 9, verses 4 to 12. The gospel for today is John 2, 13 to 22, and the epistle is the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3, the first 11 verses there. So we're continuing to look at Moses giving the people admonition and encouragement both at the same time as they move into the next phase of their existence as a nation, which will be the occupation of the land. And so he wants to make sure more than anything else that they remain faithful to him, but he has very little uh, reason to be hopeful about that based on his 40 years of experience there in the wilderness. And so this, what he's, he, so he's just yesterday said, you know, here's the problem is you're going to get into the land, you're going to get prosperous, you're going to have everything that you could ever want, you're going to have it absolutely made, and then what's going to happen is you're going to stop following him. You're going to forget the Lord, and you're going to forget him, he said, by, by, by not doing his commandments. You'll forget who you are and who he is, that he is your Lord, and, and you'll forget by way of compromise and by way of ignoring his law. And then he said the next thing you'll do is you'll start thinking pridefully that it was your strength and your might and your power that enabled you to get these riches. And he's quick to say, no, no, remember, you don't have this opportunity at all but for God. And then he makes it all possible that the land will be productive and that you will prosper in the land, and now he's going to give them another thing to be worried about. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it's because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. No, 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 no. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of those nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's not because of you, it's because of them. He made a promise to them, and all of this is based on his faithfulness to his original promise, not because of you. He had a covenant with your fathers, and he made them promises. Not because of your righteousness did he make that promise. He made that promise because he loved them. And so it is always a danger to believe, well, I'm saved because God really likes me, because I was better than other people. And the answer to that is no. No, 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 no. Your sins were different, but it didn't make you better. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. (laughs) You can just see this guy looking and going, you know what? You're arrogant, and you're going to start believing that, and it's a lie from the pit of hell because I've seen it. I've had to deal with it for 40 years. I've had to deal with your stubbornness. Remember, and don't forget, how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. 
even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Yeah, yeah, this is not about you. This is not because you are so great. I mean, 15 minutes into this thing, and you're complaining about water, and then another 15 minutes pass, and you're complaining about everything, and, and now you're ready to make your own gods and move on with life. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people who you brought out of Egypt, (laughs) have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Right from the start, you'll have no other gods before me, and you'll have no, no idols and no images. And what do they do? And they heard that. This is not something God told Moses on the mountain. These are the Ten Commandments that he told them when they were gathered together. They heard that from the mouth of the Lord. And the Lord has to look at him and say, hey, these people, your people there, the ones you brought out of Egypt, the language there, the verb for brought, always is different with respect to the work of Moses as respect to the work of God. They're doing two different things to accomplish the same goal. And so the verb there, it's not the same. And so when they make the golden calf. One of the things they say, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. The word they use for brought there is actually the word that's continually used for the work of Moses. So at some level, they're replacing Moses, not God so much. <clears throat> so that, And that's what Moses is, is saying here, is that God said, these are your people, the ones you brought out. God's distanced himself from the people. They're not my people. They're your people. They're the ones you brought up. And what a horrible thing that would be. I mean, as as far as if you're Moses, you're like, my people, I lived over there for 40 years because of them. (laughs) But he didn't. And that's the thing that makes Moses an extraordinary leader is, is that he didn't distance himself from the people in that way. He's a perfect prophet as well as a priest in some ways and a king. So he fills all those roles. He represents the people to God and God to the people. He judges the people and leads the people. He acts like the the head of the, the priesthood. And why do I say that? Well, because he's the one who anoints Aaron and his sons who are the priesthood. So he acts like a prophet in representing the people to God and God to the people. He represents the priesthood by being the one who inaugurates the priesthood. But prior to that, he had been keeping the role of the priest prior to the tabernacle. He had had set into the role of priest in deciding disputes among the people based on the law. He was not a, he was not a, 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 a sort of secular magistrate in that role. He was doing, he was interpreting God's word and God's way to God's people in order to resolve disputes among them. And he was king and that, that he was clearly the leader, even though that from time to time, even from Moses and uh, or from Aaron and Miriam challenge him, and then Korah and his group challenge him. But, but he was clearly in the role of prophet, priest, and king for God's people in this wilderness time. 
in the gospel, remember yesterday what we had seen is Jesus' first sign, and that was the sign of turning the water into wine at the uh, wedding at Cana in Galilee. And so after that, this this where the action picks up, is after they saw this and began to believe in him, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So I've, I've said this many times before, but I don't know, you know, from one day to the next who hears what. So the the situation is is that Passover is is a time when anybody who lives in the land is expected to come to Jerusalem. It's an obligation, a religious obligation, to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover there, so they can celebrate it as one people. And there's an encouragement to being there, to seeing the people of God assembled in worship. And so what happened was is that that you had to present sacrifices when you came. The problem was that the sacrifice had to be perfect and it had to be acceptable. The priests had to determine that it was acceptable to the Lord, so they had to determine that it was a perfect, unblemished animal. Well, the problem was that that you can't, if you live in the hinterlands, let's say, you can't know for certain what's going to be acceptable. And the other side of it is something could happen to that animal along the way. So you, what they did was typically they came and they purchased animals that had already been pre-approved by the priests. So they knew these would be acceptable. Well, that comes at a premium. And we can assume that, that there's a trickle-down effect from the sellers to those who had, well, approved them. So the priests were probably getting a cut out of all this stuff. And then the money changers, you had to pay the temple tax, and, and you had to pay it every time you were there. You had to pay it with a certain kind of currency. And so you brought your money from wherever you were, and then you had to change it in order to get the temple tax money and then turn that in. So that sold at a premium as well. So you got a 4X exchange there that's operating at a a huge premium because it's preying on these people. But the other thing is where they have set up is in what's called the court of the Gentiles, and it's the place as close as the Gentiles could get to the temple. And so they could hear the word of God. They could come and pray in that place, even if they were not circumcised, even if they were just proselytes. They could come into that place, and they could learn more about the ways of the Lord, and they could pray to the Lord from that place. So when they set this up, now they've prevented the Gentiles from being able to come close to the Lord in any shape, form, or fashions. So Jesus sees these people, and he makes a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Now, this must have been quite a sight and quite an experience for the disciples at this point because they had to be thinking, what in the world is he doing? This No, you can't do that. This is going to cause a big problem. You can't, you, no, you can't do this. They had to have been shocked at what he did. And he poured out all the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sell pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, why specifically does he talk, do they segregate out here the sellers of pigeons? Well, the pigeon was a poor man's sacrifice. So it's really predatory that, that they're selling those there in that place that it's, you could get a pigeon anywhere, but the problem is, is that then they could tell the priest, well, he didn't get that from me. So they're taking advantage of the poor, particularly the, the sellers of pigeons are. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, which is from the Psalms. And so they remembered that. We'll bully for them. <clears throat> but So they remember this, but at the same time, they have to think, well, this is not going to probably end all that well for us, for him to do that. 
And so the Jews, the leaders of the Jews is typically what that means, asked him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And in in other places, we see that who's asking him this are the priests, particularly because it's their province. And so they want to know, you know, by what authority do you do these things is what we get in some other gospels. But here they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And you can imagine what their reaction was when he said that. You can, you can just imagine the puzzled looks on all the faces there. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this one is going to take—they they, they don't believe this because they don't understand what he's talking about at the moment— they, it's only in retrospect that they realized, oh, you know what, when he said that, this is what he was clearly talking about, was the temple of his body. And so he just went on, it seems, from this. It doesn't seem like the, the, the sellers of sacrificial animals and all came back. It would be hard to impossible for them to argue with him. So that's the reason they didn't, they didn't stop him from doing it, because it was wrong. What they were doing was wrong. What they were allowing was wrong. In the, um, but again, in the in the same way that Moses is is fussing at the people here and saying, "Here's what's going to happen. You're going to forget. And you're going to think it's your righteousness." They've come to believe that the temple belongs to them, and somehow or another, their righteousness is all that really matters, and it's good enough. And so, therefore, they have control over these things, even if they're doing the wrong thing. And it's easy to convince yourself of that. It's really easy. I mean, I've seen it. it I certainly can see it in my own life. I've seen it in other people's lives. It's easy to convince yourself that it's okay for you to do the wrong thing because you have special pleading some way or another. In the passage from Hebrews, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's an apostle. What does that mean? It means that he, he was sent with a message from God, and he was faithful in the delivery of that message in every way. But he's also the high priest for us because he's the one who goes before the throne and stands there and pleads for us having, after having offered the only sacrifice for sin that's ever necessary or efficacious as a standalone. He said he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So what we've seen so far is, is Jesus compared to the angels and and said he sits high above those. Now we're going to get into a different comparison. This time we're going to see the, the comparison with Jesus and Moses. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So there's a huge difference here between a servant and a son. And, and Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Moses said. But he's also more than that. He's the fulfillment of every promise God ever made, including a promise to David, who comes you know, a long time after Moses, to bless him and to have one who will sit on his throne forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. So Moses didn't even have all the promises. In the same way, John the Baptist didn't have all the promises. And it's the reason that Jesus will say things like that that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist is because we know the full testimony of Jesus. 
we, we give a better message. And that's not that John failed to give his message in any way. He just didn't have the fullness of that message because he died prior to the fulfillment of it at the cross. But he did say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He didn't know the mechanism for how that would work. And we know the mechanism and we know the resurrection. We know it happened. And therefore, we have a better message than John. He says, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We don't boast in ourselves, we boast in our hope, and our hope is Jesus. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, which is what Moses was talking about in that Deuteronomy lesson, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So it's important that we not harden our hearts and that when we hear his voice, we soften our hearts and we say, hear my Lord, send me.